Back when I was an athlete, which was a really long time ago now, I used to have a severe case of athlete's foot, which is probably way more than you want to know, but it, it really happened. And, and with this athlete's foot, my foot used to itch so bad, and I would just scratch it and scratch it and itch it and itch it and itch it until my foot would become raw, and it would almost be to the point of bleeding. And if I touched it, it would hurt, but I couldn't stop scratching because it itched so bad. Have you ever had an itch like that? Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) That itch is an illustration of a real battle that every Christian faces between our desire for sin and our desire for God. We know that we should stop scratching the itch of our sin, but there are times when it's hard to stop. The Apostle Paul describes this battle well in Romans 7, where he says, For I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Do you ever find yourself desiring to do what you don't want to do and end up doing it anyway? Do you ever find yourself desiring to do what you know is wrong, but you end up doing it anyway? Hold on to that thought. This morning we are in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to continue our summer sermon series through that great chapter. If you have your Bible, please turn with me not to Hebrews 11, but to Genesis chapter 4. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Our strike team's going to come down and they'll hand out a Bible to you. Genesis chapter 4 is on page 2 of the Bibles being handed out. So before we dive into Genesis, just a little bit of context for Hebrews to help us understand here. The original audience of the Hebrews, they were tempted with the sinful desire of turning away from Jesus Christ and turning towards work of the law to earn their salvation. And in Hebrews 10, 26 through 27, it describes uh, this warning that the author of Hebrews is trying to, to give to the people. It says that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And by the time we get to chapter 11, which is where we're spending our time this summer, one of the main points, not the only main point, but one of the main points of this chapter is to show that even the Old Testament saints, they lived by faith and not by works in the Mosaic Law. Okay, so please stay in Genesis 4. I'm going to read Hebrews 11, verse 4, which is technically our verse today. And then I'm going to go back to Genesis 4 and read verses 1 through 16. And we're going to use Hebrews 11:4 as the lens to understand what's going on in Genesis 4. So Hebrews 11:4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, 
Though he died, he still speaks. And then Genesis 4, I'm going to read 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. As Pastor Jake proclaimed last week, faith is the confidence that God will do all that he has promised to do. Faith is the confidence that God will do all that he has promised to do. (coughs) And in our text this morning, we're going to look at two promises of the Lord. And these two promises are going to be my two main points. So first, God has promised that by faith we are declared righteous. By faith we are declared righteous. And second, God has promised that by faith Christ prays for your forgiveness. So first point this morning, God has promised that by faith we are declared righteous. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to use the first sentence of a Hebrews 11:4 as the lens to look at the first 7 verses of Genesis 4. So I'm just going to read the first sentence of Hebrews 11:4. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So keep that in mind as we look at Genesis 4. Now before we dive into Genesis 4, it will be helpful for us to understand the context of what's going on here. In Genesis 3, Satan disguised himself as a serpent and deceived Adam and Eve, and they sinned against God. And when they sinned, sin came into the whole world And then death through sin, and so death spread to every person because all have sinned. 
But despite this, God made a gracious promise to sinful mankind by cursing the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, we get part of the curse. And the Lord said, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now from this curse, two things happened. First, it's looking forward to the offspring. Now when it says offspring, that just means son or child. So it's looking forward to the son, singular son, who's going to crush the serpent's head while at the same time being bruised in his heel. Now the Israelites reading this, they would have known that if you were struck in the heel by a venomous snake, that would have been a death sentence. And so what God is promising here is that it will take the death of the son of the woman to crush and completely destroy the serpent. The second thing that we get from this curse is that it created the only two types of people in the world. Those who are sons of the serpent and those who are sons of the woman. And from this point onward in history, there will be an extreme and violent hatred between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, which is where we're spending our time today, we're going to see the beginning of the hatred between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman. So Genesis 4 begins with Eve giving birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. And the text tells us that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, while Cain worked the ground. And in the course of time, both of them brought a sacrifice and an offering to the Lord. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of its fat portion. Both offer sacrifices to God. Abel's was accepted, but Cain's was not. So we must ask the question, what makes an offering or sacrifice acceptable to the Lord? It's not necessarily what was being offered. As we learn in Hebrews 11, Abel gave his sacrifice by faith. And therefore, we can imply that Cain did not offer his sacrifice by faith. But looking at Genesis 4, is there anything that tells us that Abel offered by faith and Cain didn't? Well, the text tells us that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. And that's just very generic. Where Abel, he brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. That is the very best and the most important thing that he could give. And he gives it as an offering to the Lord. So Cain just gives generic and Abel gives his very best. This is a reflection of Abel's faith. And so the only difference between Cain and Abel is their heart towards God. It's their faith. And in their faith, we see that Abel gives his very best to the Lord. We get this from Hebrews 11.4. That says that by faith, God commended Abel as righteous by accepting his gifts. In Hebrews, the word for commended means to confirm or bear witness to. Abel's offering bore witness to and confirmed the fact that God had declared him righteous. Abel's gifts did not declare him righteous, but it was his faith. Abel was declared righteous 
by faith. And this is the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. That the Old Testament saints were justified by their faith in God's promise and not by their works of the Mosaic law. And when we start talking about God's promises, at the very heart, at the very center of God's promise is to justify sinners by faith. To be justified means to be legally declared righteous in God's eyes. It means that the judge of the universe legally declares you in right standing with the law of God. You may not realize it, but we just sang about this. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. That's justification. And it's only possible by faith. It was the only way that the Old Testament saints are declared righteous, and it is the only way that we are declared righteous. And what this means for us here this morning is that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you are declared righteous in His sight. Because through faith, when God looks at you, He sees you through the lens of the work of Christ. And what a glorious thing that is. And I hope that you fully understand what this means, especially when you're struggling with sinful desires. If you have faith in Christ, in God's eyes, He sees you as righteous. This is who you are. Your identity is not in your sin. Your identity is in Christ. To put it in another way, if you are confident that God will do all that He has promised to do, then you can have confidence that in God's sight you are declared righteous. Because He has promised that everyone who has faith is declared righteous by Him. Now let's go back to Cain. After Cain's offering was not accepted by God, he became very angry and his face fell. When it says that his face fell, that just means that he was depressed. So why was Cain very angry and depressed? It was because that he worked really hard to bring this offering to the Lord. Remember that Cain was a worker of the ground. And I didn't talk about this in the introduction, but in Genesis chapter 3, God also cursed the ground and made it really hard to work. And so Cain, as a worker of the ground, his work was really, really hard. And so when he brought of the fruit of the ground, he brought the fruit of his really hard work. Imagine working on a project for months and months and months and months, only to have that project rejected by your boss or by your teacher. This is what happened to Cain. Cain was trying to earn God's favor through his hard work, and his work was rejected. Cain was the first person after the fall to fail to realize that he is a sinner and that there is nothing that he can do to earn God's favor. He failed to realize that he cannot earn the righteousness needed to be justified in God's sight. Trying to earn God's favor with our good deeds is arguably one of the greatest lies that humans have had to face throughout history. Cain struggled with it. The Israelites struggled with it. The Hebrews were struggling with it. We struggle with it today. 
My friends, you cannot earn a right standing with God by your own good works. And Cain was very angry and depressed because he did not get what he wanted. He did not get God's favor. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? After Cain was very angry and depressed, the Lord warns Cain like a gracious father. And he says to him, Cain, why are you so upset? If you do well, it will go well with you. But if not, let me warn you that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. God gives Cain his word and now it's Cain's responsibility to rule over his sin because sin is crouching at the door. Sin is literally lurking behind the door waiting for Cain to open it so that sin can attack him. Sin is coiled up at the door of his heart like a snake coiled up ready to attack. And sin's desire is against Cain. Sin covets to master him. Sin craves to destroy him. Sin desperately wants to ruin him. And Cain is called by God to rule over his sin. He is to be the master over his sin and not let sin be the master over him. This is the battle that Cain is in in this moment. And this is the battle that we all face. It's the battle between the desires that are waging war within us. It's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. You can think of it like the American Civil War. Where you have troops from the same country who would line up face to face from each other, point blank range, and just annihilate one another. On one side, we have sin that desires to destroy us. On the other side, we have the Holy Spirit that desires to destroy sin. Sin is that itch that we deeply desire to scratch, that when we do, it ends up hurting us. And the Holy Spirit desires us not to scratch it because He knows that when we do, it will cause us damage. And because of this battle, we end up doing what we don't want to do and give into our sinful desires. Now let's pause and give a few definitions here. What is a desire? When you think about a desire, you can think about it in terms of anything that you want. Anything that you want. And it could be anything under the sun. It could be a person. It could be a thing. It could be a home. It could be a relationship. It could be anything. And not all desires are bad. But the question we must ask before we continue on is, how do we know if our desires are sinful? There are three questions that we can ask to find this out. And I got these questions from a devotional by Robert Jones. Does your desire or your want consume you? Is it all that you think about? Do you sin in order to get your desire? Do you do whatever it takes to get what you want? 
Do you sin when you don't get it? How do you respond when you don't get what you want? Heath Lampert describes the sinful desires of the heart well. He says, A heart that desires sin, this is a paraphrase, by the way, a heart that desires sin says, I will have whatever I want whenever I want it. I don't care if it's harmful. I don't care if it hurts God. I don't care if it hurts those I love. I will have whatever I want. When you think about your desires, do those descriptions describe it? What should you do with your evil and sinful desires? Rule over them by faith. You should rule over your sinful desires by faith. We're going to talk about more what this means here in a little bit. But you can rule over your sinful desires by faith because by faith you are declared righteous by God. But not only that, you can rule over your sinful desires because by faith, Christ prays for your forgiveness. <coughs> second point this morning, by faith, Christ prays for your forgiveness. So for the second point, I'm going to use the second sentence of Hebrews 11.4 as the lens to look at um, verses 8-14 through 14 in Genesis 4. So just a reminder here, uh, Hebrews 11.4, And through Abel's faith... Though he died, he still speaks. The first thing that Cain did after the Lord warns him about ruling over his sin is he goes out into a field with his brother and he murders him. Cain ignored the word of God and allowed sin to consume him enough to kill his own brother. This is the first recorded death in human history and it was the death of an innocent one. Now again, remember that Genesis 4 is the beginning of the description between the hatred of the sons of the serpent and the sons of the woman. And what we see here is that the firstborn son of the serpent kills the firstborn son of the woman. And this is foreshadowing of that great event when the serpent himself kills the true singular son of the woman who is also the son of God, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, the serpent bruised the heel of the son of the woman. But we know because of the promise given in Genesis 3.15 that the death of the son of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. And Jesus Christ's gruesome murder of an innocent one on the cross is the expression of the victory over the serpent. The cross and the resurrection destroy sin, death, and Satan. My friends, the son of the woman wins through his death and resurrection. And here we see the love of God expressed in the most remarkable way. That he would send his only son to be wounded to save us from our sinful desires. Let's go back to Genesis 4. After Cain murdered his brother, The Lord said to him, Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? After the sin of killing his brother, Cain lies directly to God. 
And you can see sin only a couple of verses after the Lord called him to rule over it. You can see sin just taking hold of him and mastering him and taking his heart and hardening his heart towards God and his sin just keeps piling up like a snowball rolling down a hill. And then the Lord says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. When Cain murdered Abel, Abel's blood was spilled on the ground. So imagine a pool of blood on the ground. And from the ground, that pool of blood is crying out to God. Now the word used here, to cry or to cry out, is used in the Old Testament to express crying out for justice. Abel's blood is crying out to God for justice. Abel's blood is crying out to God to take vengeance on Cain for unjustly murdering him. And Hebrews 11.4 says that through Abel's faith, though he died, he is still speaking. Abel died a long, long time ago, but he is still speaking to us. What is Abel trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that, yes, my blood is crying out for justice, but there is someone else whose blood is crying out for forgiveness. Abel is preaching the gospel to us. He's trying to tell us what Hebrews 12, 24 says, that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And this is true because the sprinkled blood of Jesus does not cry out for justice only. It cries out for justice and forgiveness at the same time. This is the beauty of God's plan of redemption that he promised in Genesis 3.15 and that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ would shed his blood on the cross in the place of sinners. And through Christ... God is both just and the justifier of the one who has, who has faith in Jesus Christ. He is just because Jesus Christ paid the penalty that was owed for sin. And he is the justifier because by faith, God looks on Christ and pardons us. By faith, we are declared as having Christ's righteousness. And by faith, the blood of Jesus pleads for our forgiveness. By faith, the precious blood of Jesus that is without blemish or spot cleanses us from all our sin. By faith, the blood of Jesus cries out to God on our behalf continually for our mercy. In other words, faith is the confidence that the blood of Jesus will pray for your forgiveness. Not just in your justification, but every single day. Going back to Genesis 4, because Cain murdered his brother, the Lord cursed him by taking away his very favorite thing, which is working the ground. No longer will the ground yield crops for Cain. And no longer will he get to work it because he will be a fugitive and a wanderer. And Cain's response is interesting. He was overwhelmed by his curse, and he cried to the Lord that his punishment is greater than he can bear. And that as he wanders, 
Whoever finds him is going to kill him. Cain is filled with grief and sorrow. But he's not repentant. Or he's not grieving his sin. He's grieving the loss of his idol of working the ground. He has no sorrow for killing his brother. All he's worried about is getting murdered himself. This type of sorrow is what the Apostle Paul calls worldly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. And I'm getting a lot of this from Heath Lampert in his book, Finally Free. Got to give him credit. When we talk about worldly sorrow, the focus is self. We experience worldly sorrow when we are upset about losing the things of this world because of the consequences of our sin. The loss could be anything that brings us security, comfort, or pleasure. Worldly sorrow is obsessed with keeping the objects of our own pleasure because it's all about us. When you think about the consequences of your sin, are you worried about yourself? Are you sorrowful over losing what you think brings you pleasure? Now Paul contrasts worldly sorrow with godly sorrow. The focus of godly sorrow is God himself. Godly sorrow is pained over the break in relationship with God that our sin causes. Godly sorrow is heartbroken that God has been grieved and offended by your sin. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that causes life. And godly sorrow causes us to change from our self-centeredness to a pure concern for living for God in His glory alone. And if you have godly sorrow over your sin, you will have a heart that wants to please God instead of yourself. <coughs> In both types of sorrow, there is actual and real sadness, brokenness, and tears. But the issue is not whether you are sad. The issue is, what are you sad about? Are you sorrowful over the sinful desires of your heart? If not, your heart has become hardened like Cain to the things of God. And let me warn you like a gracious father that this is a dangerous place to be. Because if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, only a fearful expectation of judgment. So if you have no sorrow over the sinful desires of your heart, let me encourage you to flee to the cross. But if you are sorrowful over your sinful desires, is it a godly sorrow? Are you pained over the break in relationship that your sin brings? Are you heartbroken that God has been grieved and offended? When I think about my sin, and as I was writing this, my heart was grieved that my grief isn't godly. 
Godly sorrow leads to life because it leads to a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Repentance is the turning away from sin. And faith is turning towards God in the confidence that He will do all that He has promised. So when we ask the question, what should you do with your sinful desires? We answered that you should do it by ruling over your sinful desires by faith. How do we do that? By repentance and faith. That's how we rule over sin, by repentance and faith. But how do we do this as a lifestyle? What does it look like? We can use the CAR acronym, Confess, Affirm, and Request. And again, this also comes from Heath Lampert. Now, this is the third time that I've used this acronym here at River City. And the reason that I keep using it, now I haven't used it since last September, so that's okay. But the reason that I keep using it is because the leadership believes that repentance and faith is vitally important and should be a part of our culture both personally and corporately. Because our mission statement as a church is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And the very heart of a disciple of Jesus is godly sorrow over sin and a lifestyle of repentance and faith. And that's why this is so important. Okay, so, car. The C is confess. <coughs> confess your sins and your desires to our great God. Be specific. And remember that by faith, if you confess your sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness because of the blood of Jesus Christ that is pleading for your forgiveness. The A is affirm. Affirm who you are in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, then you have been declared righteous in God's eyes. If you have faith in Christ, then the blood of Christ is praying for your forgiveness, even in the moment. This is who you are. This is your identity. And sometimes living as a Christian, it can be the hardest thing to remember who we are in Christ. And part of living a gospel-centered life is remembering who we are. The R is request. Request God's grace to change your heart. Every time one of our desires goes from sinful to godly, it takes an act of God's grace. But you know what? We can ask Him to change our hearts. We don't have to just rule over our sin on our own. We rule over our sin by faith, believing that He is the one who changes our hearts. So, Carr, confess, affirm, and request. May this be a part of our lives. Our desires are waging a war within us, and we must rule over them by faith. And we rule over our sinful desires by godly sorrow, repentance, and faith. And we can fight this battle with complete confidence that God will do all that He has promised. And He has promised that by faith we are declared righteous. He has promised that by faith the blood of Christ prays for our forgiveness. 
And if you believe in God's promises, you can have confidence that He will change your desires. Instead of a heart that says, I will have whatever I want whenever I want it. I don't care if it's harmful. I don't care if it hurts God. I don't care if it hurts those I love. I will have whatever I want. Instead of that heart, when our desires are changed as a disciple of Christ, by faith our hearts cry out, Lord, I want whatever you want, whenever you want it. I grieve over the pain my sin causes you and others, so give me a heart that wants what you want. Oh, may that be our desire. Amen? Let's pray.